The New Testament reading is from Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. We're in the middle of a sermon series uh, called Being Well, and we're working off of the premise that we learn to be well, we become well by living inside of an alternative community, and that is the church. But it's hard to find your way to the church. It's easy to leave the church because of Christians, because oftentimes the church is a very problematic place. And I think Gandhi said something about this, that I like Jesus, but I don't like or like Christ, but I don't like Christians, that we don't recommend ourselves very well in the way that we behave, the way that we live. And the, the trouble with Christians, with the church, and there are many, is that we come here every Sunday. And if you're here visiting, if you're here inspecting, then I uh, kudos for pushing through the hindrance of other Christians and how you may have been Um, rejected or um, in some way given some sense of Jesus that's not entirely accurate or compelling, and you're here, and I hope that you will see Him, see through that to find Him. But as I say we, meaning those of us who belong to town, those of us who are Christians, we come each and every week and we hear these enormous, foundational, radically transformative truths that we that we say we believe. In fact, we stand up at the end of the service and say that we believe them, and yet oftentimes we don't live as if they're true. And I don't mean here any sort of obvious, unconcerned hypocrisy. What I mean is that we hear the voice of God speaking grace over us, We hear the words of God that are speaking these endless words of kindness and His sacrificial love. And then we go into the world just as scared and acting as orphans, just as scared as everyone else, just as vulnerable to any alternative voices. We find ourselves just as vulnerable to the voices of pop culture, of our peer group, voices that are diffused and constantly dynamic, voices that are fickle and competitive and kind of judgy. And given the choice between those two voices, that of God's endless words of kindness and the dynamic, judgy, fickle voices outside in our common culture, we say, I'll take the last one. I'll listen to those voices because I prefer to have affirmation from the world outside from 
my peer group, from my culture. I choose to inhabit a world where my self-worth and my identity and my attitudes about my body are fashioned or constructed, created by an industry that doesn't think well of us. In fact, is very creative in the way that they undermine our sense of belonging, our sense of self-worth, that they create a sense of longing for something else, a sense of discontentment. And part of this, of course, has a very nefarious and predatory aspect on the, the market end of this. But on the buying end, that is the consumer end, you and I, we often know this. We often know that the ads that we're watching are nefarious and predatory and they play to our most base instincts of self-regard and self-assertion. And yet, we keep buying. Yet, we keep submitting ourselves to this endless scrutiny of commercials and of media and of our peers. And we know that we're diminishing ourselves in doing this. We know that we're diminishing ourselves as we buy, as we diet, as we purge, as we exercise incessantly in pursuit of an ideal that is completely artificial, that is changing constantly, that is predatory, and is unattainable. We know all this, and yet we still play the game. Why do we do this? Why are Christians who hear these enormous truths each and every week just as liable to buy into that scheme, just as liable to give our money away to buy things that we don't need to make us feel better about ourselves based upon the messages that the person selling those items has given to us? Why are we so content? Well, I was thinking about this this week, and if you think about our transition from childhood to adolescence. I think it kind of gives us a window into this sense where we move out of a place of perceived safety into this place of wilderness and of the Wild West and not knowing if we're going to have our needs met. And we do so willingly. That's what moving from childhood into adolescence is. We move from a world where our parents' opinions, their touch, their presence, their words, it shapes everything about us. And if we have a closeness then with our parents, then there's generally an internal healthiness, an internal stability. But as we enter into adolescence, other voices begin to matter, and they begin to displace the voices of our parents. And we begin to attach ourselves more and more in our sense of self to our peers and the community that they represent. These are the people that we're probably going to go grow old with. I was driving our youngest son, Elliot, who's almost 12, to school this, this week, and I was thinking about this because he had recently gotten a haircut, and he looked like a total snack. If you don't have kids, you can Google that. He looked awesome. I mean, his haircut was perfect, and yet he was fidgeting with it to no end. He was, like, late to come to the door to leave because he was in front of the mirror, you know, primping and trying to get that 
the one hair that was out of place perfect. And he was moosing and gelling or whatever it was he was doing. And it wasn't enough. And so he pulled down the, the shade with the mirror on the back of it and the car on the way to school. And I could tell he was just so frustrated that he wasn't getting it right. He wasn't getting it like the stylist had gotten it the day before that looked just so good. And so I remember this, you know, from high school and middle school. I would stand in the mirror and fidget with my hair, those glorious days. My mom cut my hair. I didn't get to go to a stylist, like it's not till later. But I thought that she was a wizard with scissors because one time she asked me before a haircut, what do you want this haircut to look like? And I went and found a trading card of Han Solo, and I gave it to her. And I said, this, this is what I want to look like. And, of course, she's not a wizard, and I was disappointed. But I would always, in the mirror, before leaving for school, brush and style and maybe even blow dry, if you can believe that, wet and gel it. And she would come in and say, you know, look, it looks just like it did 10 minutes ago. Which, and she would add to that, it looks great, you look fine, you know, go to school, you're going to be great. And it would not matter at all to me. She could tell me that it looked like the best haircut the world had ever known. And I looked exactly like Han Solo. And I would completely disregard it and go to school frustrated. And so I was having this flashback moment with Elliot, and I was feeling this sense of empathy for his situation. And instead of just telling him, you know, hey, bud, it looks great, you're going to be fine, get over it, I had a moment where I actually reflected. And I said, hey, Elliot, you know, I I think your hair looks great, but, you know, I know how you feel, and I could tell you a thousand times that it's exactly like it was yesterday, and it's perfect, and it wouldn't really help, would it? And why do you think that is? And 12-year-old Elliot thought for a moment, and then he said, well, I guess, Dad, because that's what you're supposed to say, is that it looks good. And if you didn't say that, you'd be like a really terrible person. <laughs> and I think he's right on, on both accounts. We have been reading and rereading the opening chapters of Genesis throughout this series where God looks upon his creation, including spiritual parents that are named Adam and Eve, man and woman, that are sort of stand-ins for you and I. He looks at this creation. He looks upon us by extension, and he said, it looks great. Well, he doesn't say that quite, but he says, it is good. I pronounce a benediction over this. And this goodness is not a moral evaluation. It's an aesthetic one. He's saying that he finds creation, he finds you to be beautiful and lovely and priceless and pleasing to him. This is well before Jesus comes. So, Jesus, God looks upon you and he finds you to be wonderfully attractive and creatively made and beautiful to look upon. 
And our spiritual ancestors chose to hear that and then listen to competing voices as well. And God responds not with anger, not with shame, but out of sadness, out of a sense of personal loss because those he created for friendship and for companionship have now flown the coop. And he says, where are you? My friends and my children, my companions, where have you gone? Why have you left me? Why are you listening to these competing voices when I'm telling you you are good and you are pleasing exactly how you are? And he pursues them. He goes and he, he covers them. He covers their shame and he clothes their nakedness. He replaces these pitiful little fig leaves with these animal skins, a little bit more durable, certainly not perfect. But it's an accommodation to their sense of shame, their sense of nakedness. And we see in this a God who is fundamentally for humanity, a God who is in pursuit of his children even when they blow it. Even when they choose to listen to contrary voices, he looks upon us with sheer delight, with the delight of a parent that can say, you look great. You're perfect as you are. Things are good. You are good. And he says that about us, whatever the shape or size of our bodies He finds us beautiful. But, friends, for some reason, that benediction, that statement, it doesn't trigger our affect in the same way that peer review does. It just doesn't grip us as as viscerally. And there's a whole sort of evolutionary reason to this. If you want to go listen to an interesting lecture from Daniel Siegel, he talks about how this moving out of this safety of parental voices into this unknown of connecting our significance and our connection with peers is actually sort of scripted into us biologically because that's how mammals live as they live in a collaborative way. It's incredibly interesting. But all that to say is that this connection or lack of connection that we feel with peers is very visceral. It's very deep. It's very embodied. And so even if our parents tell us that they love us, we sort of think, well, they're stuck with us. They're supposed to do that. To not tell us that would make them terrible people, like Elliot, the theologian, says. You see, God sees us, as our parents do, through filtered lenses, but our peers, we think, tell us the truth, that they're going to tell us if we really are pretty or if we're not. And so we roll the ball into that court. Even if that truth is just as likely to be painful as it is comforting, We choose to go there. We choose to play in that court. And it feels like the girl I told you about a few months ago who 
submitted her picture back in the early 2000s to that nefarious website that's now become Facebook that started off as amihotornot.com. There's a little bit more of a lengthy journey between those two sites, but there literally was a site, amihotornot.com, and people literally submitted their pictures for review. And this one girl got rated 90% negative. Nine out of ten people thought that she was not hot, but what she did was she combed through all of the comments to find the other 10%. And she says, it really picked up my self-esteem to know that there are still people out there who find me beautiful. 10% of the known world in that community found her not hot, not attractive, but she combed through those comments and just stuck her identity to them. The thing that makes parental love and by extension God's love so unique is paradoxically the thing that makes it so expendable. The fact that we're told that it's unconditional, it's endless, it will never run dry, at some, in some way also makes it feel a little bit more expendable. And we'd rather try to make sure that our peers give us the love and the affection that we want. Because we begin to think, well, I will always have God's love, but what I really want to know is what will my classmates think of my new haircut? I will always have God's love, but did the cute guy one cubicle over notice my new outfit that I spent a lot of money on? I'll always have God's love, but will my wife be impressed by my preternaturally ripped biceps? Wait, how did that get in there? I'm sure that's just just an example. Sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're so hard on ourselves, and we think that, especially within certain branches of Christianity, we think, about care, think that caring about these questions at all is wrong and is sinful and we should avoid it. But I think, well, I don't think, I say that that is bad theology. That's bad thinking about God. Having a desire to feel beautiful, having a desire to wear flattering clothing, attractive clothing, exercising because you feel like you like the way that it shapes your body, these inclinations are not intrinsically wrong. The problem arises when we begin to shape our entire identity, our sense of self, around how we're doing in those areas. When it becomes a fixation, when we begin to believe in some way that we are nothing without our beauty, we are nothing without the affirmation that we get from a new outfit or a new haircut or a new set of abs. We begin to believe that we're nothing without that. Or maybe worse, when we begin to believe that we're nothing without our spouse's beauty, how destructive that can be. That's when those questions become very nefarious when a desire to be attractive and to fit in and to wear clothes that sort of represent the social group 
that we're in, when that becomes an obsession and we can't live with those moments where we sense a disorientation or a distance from that ideal, it becomes very problematic and traumatic and very unhealthy. So is is there anything that can ground us between sort of the, the fetishization of beauty and body on one hand in the climate that we inhabit now, between that and sort of the false piety that considers any pursuit of beauty or self-care or concern for your appearance to be total vanity and even idolatry? Is there something, not necessarily in the middle, but a different way to conceive of ourselves that gives distance between those two things? And we see as we've read Genesis, that this is really an ancient question. It's not something that we modern people just invented or a problem that we have, even though appearance and body image might be on steroids in our, in our day. The writer of Genesis is telling us a very similar story, maybe 3,000 years ago. We have the story of this ancient couple that felt very unsafe in their marriage, And even in this garden of delights where everything was ideal, everything was perfect, that they related directly with God, even in that situation, they felt incomplete. They felt vulnerable to these alternative voices, and they listened to them. And maybe there's an element of comfort here because When we reflect upon ourselves, we know that even under these ideal, perfect circumstances, they doubted the sufficiency of God's love. And maybe they said, well, he's just stuck with us. That's what he's supposed to say. He's supposed to love us, and he sees us through these colored lenses that make us beautiful to him, but maybe we're not really. And so they chose the scrutiny of peer review. And I'm not being cute with the narrative here, or at least I don't think I am, because what are they doing? They are noticing each other's nakedness, and it makes them afraid. It makes them fearful. It creates a distance between them rather than an intimacy. There's another person all of a sudden here that's there to scrutinize me and can see everything about me. And for those of you that are in long-term relationships or marriages, you, you kind of have a sense of what the writer means here. Because after you've been married for a while, you realize that this person that you used to date and have a great time with, but you usually said goodbye to at some point, they're there all the time. And they know much more about you than you're comfortable with. Well, that's exactly what Adam and Eve are feeling here. They're feeling exposed, and so they cover. And they use clothing, ironically enough. God spoke this word of delight over them, this word of love, of aesthetic love. You are beautiful to me. You are lovely, pleasing, and it wasn't enough. Even in perfect circumstances, it wasn't enough. And so the Bible goes on to tell this long story of just about every way that we as humanity have thought to cover ourselves, to keep ourselves from being exposed. The fig leaves and the animal skins, other gods. Maybe if I try out other gods, if I sacrifice to other gods, 
maybe I can use these things that are more imminent. The golden calf would be a good example. I'll try on tribal identity. If I belong in this group and there's an us and a them, then maybe I'll feel secure. And we see them try on violence. Maybe if I go and I eliminate the other tribes, then I'll feel secure and safe. And it proceeds to land, occupation, temple, kingdom, and law, morality. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in our second reading, this law-keeping as an act of covering, the law as clothing. And Paul is pretty good at this, that he belonged because he was more moral than everyone else. He was more committed. He was more law-abiding than everyone else. And the law gave him a sense of security, of belonging, and to some degree, the law was meant to do that. It was an accommodation similar to the animal skins that God gave Adam and Eve. It's an accommodation, and Paul here calls it a very positive term, a guardian. Until the time of Christ, the law is a guardian for all of humanity. It's a caregiver. Or maybe you think about a a nanny or a babysitter, someone that when you are unable to care for yourself, your parents, when they're away, give you a caregiver, a babysitter, to protect you and to guide you in ways of safety. And that's what Paul is saying, that the law is meant to give you a sense of belonging and safety, and it's meant to tell us how to live in the world in healthy ways. Now, child development experts will tell us that quite contrary to a child's protestations that against household rules, against boundaries, that they actually do want them. They do want household rules because it conveys to them a sense that the parents actually care for them and they want their well-being. And so even though they might bristle at the specificity, they love the concept of the fact that a parent will set guidelines and move them into the world with a sense of direction. And that's what the law was meant to do, to tell us, to tell ancient Israel, you are not alone. You are not alone in this dangerous world. But here are some ways to live that are meant to create long life and longevity and meant to create safety and healthy relationships. But while rules and boundaries are essential, they're also insufficient for a full life, for understanding the totality of parental love or the totality of God's love. And sometimes a child or sometimes we, you know, we push on that boundary just just to see how steady it is, just to see how firm it is. And also we push on it to see how serious our parents or God are about this boundary. Because sometimes we believe that these rules are arbitrary, that they don't flow from love. But they're meant to harm us. They're meant to keep us from being happy. Does this ring a bell at all? Maybe in your own life, but certainly from the story that we read in Genesis. Because Adam and Eve, they have one law. They have one rule, or at least one proscription, and they doubted that it flowed from a heart of gladness. They doubted that it was created out of love. It didn't feel like a guardian to them. 
it felt like an oppressor. Maybe God was being stingy. And they escaped out from under the household rules. And just like a child that runs away, it sounds like such a good deal. And then they get two blocks down the neighborhood and they're petrified. What have I done? And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. They leave the safety of the, gar- of the garden. They push against the household rules. They test the boundaries, thinking that this is where gladness in life is going to be found. And they find themselves naked and alone. So they cover themselves with plants. And they probably looked as silly as the illustrations in our children's books of little white Adam and Eve with their brown hair hiding in the bushes. It's a silly picture. Like, how could you think that that would protect you? But God doesn't come and shame them. He doesn't come and say, you guys, you look so stupid standing over there in the bushes. Come out. But he closed them. He closed them further. It's an accommodation. And this is how the law was a guardian, meant as wise guardrails, the household rules. But if the law becomes more than that, in the same way that if our body becomes more, if our appearance, our self-regard becomes our identity, in the same way, then it creates relationships that are transactional and shallow and surfacy, and it allows for doubt to enter into that love equation between the two parties. In fact, the law, Paul says, becomes something else, not a benevolent guardian, but a prison. Did you see verse 23, that the law held them in custody, that the law became for them a prison because they were using it against God's wishes. Whenever that benediction of good, beautiful, lovely, pleasing is in doubt, we feel naked and alone, and we'll do anything to acquire something to replace it. We'll do anything to create this sense that I am approved, I'm lovely, and normally we go to our peers. We go to the use the signs that the media, pop culture, and our peers give to us to use. And our sense of self deteriorates, it diminishes. In a society that fetishizes appearance, we'll starve ourselves for the right body type. We'll spend way too much money on clothes, constantly standing in our closet assessing, is this still in style? Does this still work? We'll scrutinize our bodies to the point of self-loathing. And along with that, scrutinize the bodies of others. And it's not a good way to live. Friends, let me, let me conclude this way. Paul tells us, as I alluded to during the confession of this alternative society, this place that is supposed to be sort of a new Eden, that when Adam and Eve leave the garden and they find themselves alone and ashamed and looking for ways to cover, what God does is He leaves the garden and He goes to find them one day to bring them back in. They never leave fellowship, but there's always this coming place, this coming land, this coming city, and a garden 
that will come down that God is meant to lead them back. And that is what Jesus does. And friends, that that for now is meant to be the church, this alternative society where you come in and you are clothed with Christ. We see the story of nakedness leading to shame, and we see this act of radical love of a God who pursues with compassion. And then later we see this Jesus, this Messiah, the answer, the solution, what Paul calls the second Adam. We see him approaching the cross, and as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that they divide up his garments. They make him naked and ashamed, or they try to shame him. But in his nakedness, ours is absorbed. It's in his shame that we find the end of ours. And Paul is not talking here just about better fig leaves, better covering. What he's talking about is transformation. Because now you see Christ has come in, and you are in Christ. There is a completely new you that paradoxically brings out the real you. Now you're able to live with confidence. Now you're able to live not in a competitive world, always vying for approval, but able to live knowing that the God who created you doesn't just tell you you're beautiful, but He goes to the cross to demonstrate how beautiful you are to Him, the lengths to which He will go to have you, to be one with you, to bring you back into into Eden, into the city of God, into the church, that this place is meant to be that place of safety, that place where competition dies, that place where diminished people get built up again and get reminded who they really are over and over. And this has to be practiced, and I don't have time to address that, so we'll do that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time you've given us, and we pray that as we come to the table that we would see more and more, that we would understand more and more, that we would embody more and more of the truth that you find us lovely and beautiful and fully pleasing, and that we don't have to go into the world empty, longing, trying to fill up that which is lacking, but help us to live out of an abundance. We pray in